This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today, chapters 23 and 24 of The Return of Tarzan. And now, chapter 23, The Fifty Frightful Men. For several long minutes, Jane Porter and William Cecil Clayton stood silently looking at the dead body of the beast whose prey they had so narrowly escaped becoming. The girl was the first to speak again after her outbreak of impulsive avowal. "'Who could it have been?' she whispered. "'God knows,' was the man's only reply. "'If it is a friend, why does he not show himself?' continued Jane. "'Wouldn't it be well to call out to him? At least thank him?' Mechanically, Clayton did her bidding, but there was no response. Jane Porter shuddered. "'The mysterious jungle!' she murmured. The terrible jungle. It renders even the manifestations of friendship terrifying. We had best return to the shelter, said Clayton. You'll be at least a little safer there. I am no protection whatever, he added, bitterly. Do not say that, William, she hastened to urge, acutely sorry for the wound her words had caused. You have done the best you could. You have been noble and self-sacrificing and brave, it is no fault of yours that you are not a superman. There is only one other man I've ever known who could have done more than you. My words were ill-chosen in the excitement of the reaction. I did not wish to wound you. All that I wish is that we may both understand once and for all that I can never marry you, that such a marriage would be wicked. I think I understand, he replied. Let us not speak of it again, at least until we are back in civilization. The next day, Thuran was worse. Almost constantly he was in a state of delirium. They could do nothing to relieve him, nor was Clayton over-anxious to attempt anything. On the girl's account he feared the Russian. In the bottom of his heart he hoped the man would die. The thought that something might befall him that would leave her entirely at the mercy of this beast caused him greater anxiety than the probability that almost certain death awaited her should she be left entirely alone upon the outskirts of the cruel forest. The Englishman had extracted the heavy spear from the body of the lion, so that when he went into the forest to hunt that morning, he had a feeling of much greater security than at any time since they had been cast upon the savage shore. The result was that he penetrated farther from the shelter than ever before. 
to escape as far as possible from the mad ravings of the fever-stricken Russian, Jane Porter had descended from the shelter to the foot of the tree. She dared not venture further. Here, beside the crude ladder Clayton had constructed for her, she sat looking out to sea, in the always surviving hope that a vessel might be sighted. Her back was toward the jungle, and so she did not see the grasses part or the savage face that peered from between. Little, bloodshot, close-set eyes scanned her intently, roving from time to time about the open beach for indications of the presence of others than herself. Presently another head appeared, and then another, and another. The man in the shelter commenced to rave again, and the heads disappeared as silently and as suddenly as they had come, but soon they were thrust forth once more, as the girl gave no sign of perturbation at the continued wailing of the man above. One by one grotesque forms emerged from the jungle to creep stealthily upon the unsuspecting woman. A faint rustling of the grasses attracted her attention. She turned, and at the sight that confronted her, "'staggered to her feet with a little shriek of fear. "'Then they closed upon her with a rush. "'Lifting her bodily in his long, gorilla-like arms, "'one of the creatures turned and bore her into the jungle. "'A filthy paw covered her mouth to stifle her screams. "'Added to the weeks of torture she had already undergone, "'the shock was more than she could withstand. "'Shattered nerves collapsed, and she lost consciousness. "'When she regained her senses, "'she found herself in the thick of the primeval forest. "'It was night.' A huge fire burned brightly in the little clearing in which she lay. About it squatted fifty frightful men. Their heads and faces were covered with matted hair. Their long arms rested upon the bent knees of their short, crooked legs. They were gnawing like beasts upon unclean food. A pot boiled upon the edge of the fire, and out of it one of the creatures would occasionally drag a hunk of meat with a sharpened stick. When they discovered that their captive had regained consciousness, a piece of this repulsive stew was tossed to her from the foul hand of a nearby feaster. It rolled close to her side, but she only closed her eyes as a qualm of nausea surged through her. For many days they traveled through the dense forest. The girl, footsore and exhausted, was half-dragged, half-pushed through the long, hot, tedious days. Occasionally, when she would stumble and fall, she was cuffed and kicked by the nearest of the frightful men. Long before they reached their journey's end, her shoes had been discarded, the soles entirely gone. Her clothes were torn to mere shreds and tatters, and through the pitiful rags her once white and tender skin showed raw and bleeding from contact with the thousand pitiless thorns and brambles through which she had been dragged. The last two days of the journey found her in such utter exhaustion that no amount of kicking and abuse could force her to her poor, bleeding feet. Outraged nature had reached the limit of endurance, and the girl was physically powerless to raise herself even to her knees. As the beasts surrounded her, chattering threateningly the while they goaded her with their cudgels and beat and kicked her with their fists and feet, she lay with closed eyes, praying for the merciful death that she knew alone could give her surcease from suffering. But it did not come, and presently the fifty frightful men realized that their victim was no longer able to walk, and so they picked her up and carried her the balance of the journey. Late one afternoon she saw the ruined walls of a mighty city looming before them, but so weak and sick was she that it inspired not the faintest shadow of interest. Wherever they were burying her, there could be but one end to her captivity among these fierce half-brutes. At last they passed through two great walls and came to the ruined city within. Into a crumbling pile they bore her, and here she was surrounded by hundreds more of the same creatures that had brought her. But among them were females who looked less horrible. In sight of them, the first faint hope that she had entertained came to mitigate her misery. But it was short-lived, 
for the women offered her no sympathy, though, on the other hand, neither did they abuse her. After she had been inspected to the entire satisfaction of the inmates of the building, she was borne to a dark chamber in the vaults beneath, and here upon the bare floor she was left with a metal bowl of water and another of food. For a week she saw only some of the women whose duty it was to bring her food and water. Slowly her strength was returning. Soon she would be in fit condition to offer as a sacrifice to the flaming god. Fortunate indeed it was that she could not know the fate for which she was destined. As Tarzan of the Apes moved slowly through the jungle after casting the spear that saved Clayton and Jane Porter from the fangs of Numa, his mind was filled with all the sorrow that belongs to a freshly opened heart wound. He was glad that he had stayed his hand in time to prevent the consummation of the thing that in the first mad wave of jealous wrath he had contemplated. Only the fraction of a second had stood between Clayton and death at the hands of the ape-man. In the short moment that had elapsed after he had recognized the girl and her companion and the relaxing of the taut muscles that held the poison shaft directed at the Englishman's heart, Tarzan had been swayed by the swift and savage impulses of brute life. He had seen the woman he craved, his woman, his mate, in the arms of another. There had been but one course open to him, according to the fierce jungle code that guided him in this other existence. But just before it had become too late, the softer sentiments of his inherent chivalry had risen above the flaming fires of his passion and saved him. A thousand times he gave thanks that they had triumphed before his fingers had released that polished arrow. As he contemplated his return to the Waziri, the idea became repugnant. He did not wish to see a human being again. At least he would range alone through the jungle for a time, until the sharp edge of his sorrow had become blunted. Like his fellow beasts, he preferred to suffer in silence and alone. That night he slept again in the amphitheater of the apes, and for several days he hunted from there, returning at night. On the afternoon of the third day he returned early. He had lain stretched upon the soft grass of the circular clearing for but a few moments when he heard far to the south a familiar sound. It was the passing through the jungle of a band of great apes. He could not mistake that. For several minutes he lay listening. They were coming in the direction of the amphitheater. Tarzan arose lazily and stretched himself. His keen ears followed every movement of the advancing tribe. They were upwind, and presently he caught their scent though he had not needed this added evidence to assure him that he was right. As they came closer to the amphitheater, Tarzan of the apes melted into the branches upon the other side of the arena. There he waited to inspect the newcomers. Nor had he long to wait. Presently a fierce, hairy face appeared among the lower branches opposite him. The cruel little eyes took in the clearing at a glance. Then there was a chattered report returned to those behind. Tarzan could hear the words. The scout was telling the other members of the tribe that the coast was clear and that they might enter the amphitheater in safety. First the leader dropped lightly upon the soft carpet of the grassy floor, and then, one by one, nearly a hundred anthropoids followed him. There were the huge adults and several young. A few nursing babes clung close to the shaggy necks of their savage mothers. Tarzan recognized many members of the tribe. It was the same into which he had come as a tiny babe. Many of the adults he saw now had been little apes during his boyhood. He had frolicked and played about this very jungle with them during their brief childhood. He wondered if they would remember him. The memory of some apes is not overlong, and two years was an eternity to them. From the talk which he overheard, he learned that they had come to choose a new king, 
Their late chief had fallen a hundred feet beneath a broken limb to an untimely end. Tarzan walked to the end of an overhanging limb in plain view of them. The quick eyes of the female caught sight of him first. With a barking guttural she called the attention of the others. Several huge bulls stood erect to get a better view of the intruder. With bared fangs and bristling necks they advanced slowly toward him, with deep-throated, ominous growls. "'Karnath, I am Tarzan of the Apes,' said the ape-man in the vernacular of the tribe. "'You remember me. Together we teased Nuna when we were little apes, throwing sticks and nuts at him from the safety of high branches.' The brute he had addressed stopped with a look of half-comprehending, dull wonderment upon his savage face. "'And Magor!' continued Tarzan, addressing another. "'Do you not recall your former king, he who slew the mighty Kerjak? "'Look at me! Am I not the same Tarzan, mighty hunter, invincible fighter, that you all knew for many seasons?' The apes all crowded forward now, but more in curiosity than threatening. They muttered among themselves for a few moments. "'What do you want among us now?' asked Karnath. "'Only peace,' answered the ape-man. Again the apes conferred. At length Karnath spoke again. "'Come in peace, then, Tarzan of the apes,' he said. And so Tarzan of the apes dropped lightly to the turf into the midst of the fierce and hideous horde. He had completed the cycle of evolution, and had returned to be once again a brute among brutes. There were no greetings such as would have taken place among men after a separation of two years. The majority of the apes went on about the little activities that the advent of the ape-man had interrupted paying no further attention to him as though he had not been gone from the tribe at all. One or two young bulls who had not been old enough to remember him sidled up on all fours to sniff at him, and one bared his fangs and growled threateningly. He wished to put Tarzan immediately into his proper place. Had Tarzan backed off, growling, the young bull would quite probably have been satisfied, but always after Tarzan stationed among his fellow apes would have been beneath that of the bull which had made him step aside. But Tarzan of the Apes did not back off. Instead, he swung his giant palm with all the force of his mighty muscles, and catching the young bull alongside the head, sent him sprawling across the turf. The ape was up and at him again in a second, and this time they closed with tearing fingers and rending fangs, or at least that had been the intention of the young bull. But scarcely had they gone down, growling and snapping, than the ape-man's fingers found the throat of his antagonist. Presently the young bull ceased to struggle, and lay quite still. Then Tarzan released his hold and arose. He did not wish to kill, only to teach the young ape, and others who might be watching, that Tarzan of the apes was still master. The lesson served its purpose. The young apes kept out of his way, as young apes should when their betters were about, and the old bulls made no attempt to encroach upon his prerogatives. For several days the she-apes with young remained suspicious of him, and when he ventured too near rushed upon him with wide mouths and hideous roars. Then Tarzan discreetly skipped out of harm's way, for that also is a custom among the apes. Only mad bulls will attack a mother. But after a while even they became accustomed to him. He hunted with them as in days gone by, and when they found that his superior reason guided him to the best food sources, and that his cunning rope ensnared toothsome game that they seldom if ever tasted, they came again to look up to him as they had in the past after he had become their king. And so it was, before they left the amphitheater to return to their wanderings, they had once more chosen him as their leader. The ape-man felt quite contented with his new lot. He was not happy that he never could be again, but
but he was at least as far from everything that might remind him of his past misery as he could be. Long since he had given up every intention of returning to civilization, and now he had decided to see no more his black friends of the Waziri. He had forsworn humanity forever. He had started life an ape, as an ape he would die. He could not, however, erase from his memory the fact that the woman he loved was within a short journey of the stamping ground of his tribe, nor could he banish the haunting fear that she might be constantly in danger. That she was not well protected he had seen in the brief instant that he had witnessed Clayton's inefficiency. The more Tarzan thought of it, the more keenly his conscience pricked him. Finally he came to loathe himself for permitting his own selfish sorrow and jealousy to stand between Jane Porter and safety. As the days passed, the thing preyed more and more upon his mind, and he had about determined to return to the coast to place himself on guard over Jane Porter and Clayton, when news reached him that altered all his plans and sent him dashing madly toward the east in reckless disregard of accident and death. Before Tarzan had returned to the tribe, a certain young bull, not being able to secure a mate from among his own people, had, according to custom, fared forth through the wild jungle like some knight-errant of old, to win a fair lady from some neighboring community. He had but just returned with his bride, and was narrating his adventures quickly before he should forget them. Among other things he told of seeing a great tribe of strange-looking apes. They were all hairy-faced bulls but one, he said, and that one was a she, lighter in color than even this stranger, and he chucked a thumb at Tarzan. The ape-man was all attention in an instant. He asked questions as rapidly as the slow-witted anthropoid could answer them. Were the bulls short, with crooked legs? They were. Did they wear the skins of Numa and Sheeta about their loins, and carry sticks and knives? They did. And were there many yellow rings about their arms and legs? Yes. And the she one, was she small and slender, and very white? Yes. Did she seem to be one of the tribe, or was she a prisoner? They dragged her along, sometimes by an arm, "'sometimes by the long hair that grew upon her head, "'and always they kicked and beat her. "'Oh, but it was great fun to watch them.' "'Good God!' muttered Tarzan. "'Where were they when you saw them, "'and which way were they going?' "'continued the ape-man. "'They were beside the second water, back there, "'and he pointed to the south. "'When they passed me they were going toward the morning, "'upward along the edge of the water.' "'When was this?' asked Tarzan. "'Half a moon since.' Without another word, the ape-man sprang into the trees and fled like a disembodied spirit eastward in the direction of the forgotten city of Opar. We'll return to Chapter 24 right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers, as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. 
Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Chapter 24 How Tarzan Came Again to Opar. When Clayton returned to the shelter and found Jane Porter was missing, he became frantic with fear and grief. He found Monsieur Thuran quite rational, the fever having left him with the surprising suddenness which is one of its peculiarities. The Russian, weak and exhausted, still lay upon his bed of grasses within the shelter. When Clayton asked him about the girl, he seemed surprised to know that she was not there. "'I have heard nothing unusual,' he said. "'But then I've been unconscious much of the time.' Had it not been for the man's very evident weakness, Clayton should have suspected him of having sinister knowledge of the girl's whereabouts. But he could see that Thoran lacked sufficient vitality even to descend, unaided, from the shelter. He could not, in his present physical condition, have harmed a girl, nor could he have climbed the rude ladder back to the shelter. Until dark the Englishman searched the nearby jungle for a trace of the missing one or a sign of the trail of her abductor. But though the spoor left by the fifty frightful men, unversed in woodcraft as they were, would have been as plain to the densest denizen of the jungle as a city street to the Englishman, yet he crossed and recrossed it twenty times without observing the slightest indication that many men had passed that way but a few short hours since. As he searched, Clayton continued to call the girl's name aloud, but the only result of this was to attract Numa, the lion. Fortunately, the man saw the shadowy form worming its way toward him in time to climb into the branches of a tree before the beast was close enough to reach him. This put an end to his search for the balance of the afternoon, as the lion paced back and forth beneath him until dark. Even after the beast had left, Clayton dared not descend into the awful blackness beneath him, and so he spent a terrifying and hideous night in the tree. The next morning he returned to the beach, relinquishing the last hope of finding and rescuing Jane Porter. During the week that followed, Monsieur Thuran rapidly regained his strength, lying in the shelter while Clayton hunted food for both. The men never spoke except as necessity demanded. Clayton now occupied the section of the shelter which had been reserved for Jane Porter, and only saw the Russian when he took food or water to him, or performed the other kindly offices which common humanity required. When Thoran was again able to descend in search of food, Clayton was stricken with fever. For days he lay tossing in delirium and suffering, but not once did the Russian come near him. Food the Englishman could not have eaten, but his craving for water amounted practically to torture. Between the recurrent attacks of delirium, weak though he was, he managed to reach the brook once a day and fill a tiny can that had been among the few appointments of the lifeboat. Thoran watched him on these occasions with an expression of malignant pleasure, he seemed really to enjoy the suffering of the man who, despite the just contempt in which he held him, had ministered to him the best of his ability while he lay suffering the same agonies. At last Clayton became so weak that he was no longer able to descend from the shelter. For a day he suffered for water without appealing to the Russian, but finally, unable to endure it longer, he asked Thoran to fetch him a drink. The Russian came to the entrance to Clayton's room, a dish of water in his hand. A nasty grin contorted his features. 
"'Here, here is water,' he said. "'But first, let me remind you that you maligned me before the girl, "'that you kept her to yourself and would not share her with me.' "'Clayton interrupted him. "'Stop!' he cried. "'Stop! What manner of cur are you that you introduced the character of a good woman "'whom we believe dead? God, I was a fool to ever let you live. "'You're not fit to live even in this vile land.' "'Here is your water,' said the Russian. "'All you will get.' "'And he raised the basin to his lips and drank. "'What was left he threw out upon the ground below. "'Then he turned and left the sick man. "'Clayton rolled over and, burying his face in his arms, "'gave up the battle. "'The next day Thuran determined to set out toward the north along the coast, "'for he knew that eventually he must come to the habitations of civilized men. "'At least he could be no worse off than he was here.' and furthermore, the ravings of the dying Englishman were getting on his nerves. So he stole Clayton's spear and set off upon his journey. He would have killed the sick man before he left had it not occurred to him that it would really have been a kindness to do so. That same day he came to a little cabin by the beach, and his heart filled with renewed hope as he saw this evidence of the proximity of civilization, for he thought it but the outpost of some nearby settlement. Had he known to whom it belonged, and that its owner was at that very moment but a few miles inland, Nicholas Rokoff would have fled the place as he would a pestilence, but he did not know, and so he remained for a few days to enjoy the security and comparative comforts of the cabin. Then he took up his northward journey once more. In Lord Tennington's camp preparations were going forward to build permanent quarters, and then to send out an expedition of a few men to the north in search of relief. As the days passed without bringing the long-for succor, hope that Jane Border, Clayton, and Monsieur Thuran had been rescued began to die. No one spoke of the matter longer to Professor Porter, and he was so immersed in his scientific dreaming that he was not aware of the elapse of time. Occasionally he would remark that within a few days they should certainly see a steamer drop anchor off their shore, and that then they should all be reunited happily. Sometimes he spoke of it as a train, and wondered if it were being delayed by snowstorms. "'If I didn't know the dear old fellow so well by now,' Tennyson remarked to Miss Strong, I should be quite certain that he was, er, uh, not quite right, don't you know? As if it were not so pathetic, it would be ridiculous, said the girl, sadly. I, who have known him all my life, know how he worships Jane, but to others it must seem that he is perfectly callous to her fate. It is only that he is so absolutely impractical that he cannot see of so real a thing as death unless, unless nearly certain proof of it is thrust upon him. You'd never guess what he was about yesterday. "'continued Tennington. "'I was coming in alone from a little hunt "'when I met him walking rapidly along the game trail "'that I was following back to camp. "'His hands were clasped beneath the tails of his long black coat, "'and his top hat was set firmly down upon his head, "'as with eyes bent upon the ground he hastened on, "'probably to some sudden death had I not intercepted him. "'Why, where in the world are you bound, Professor?' I asked him. "'I'm going into town, Lord Tennington,' he said, "'as seriously as possible.' "'to complain to the postmaster about the rural free delivery service we're suffering from here. "'Why, sir, I haven't had a piece of mail in weeks. "'There should be several letters for me from Jane. "'The matter must be reported to Washington at once.' "'And would you believe it, Miss Strong?' continued Tennington. "'I had the very deuce of a job to convince the old fellow "'that there was not only no rural free delivery, but no town, "'and that he was not even on the same continent as Washington, "'nor in the same hemisphere.' When he did realize, he commenced to worry about his daughter. I think it is the first time that he really has appreciated our position here, 
or the fact that Miss Porter may not have been rescued. "'I hate to think about it,' said the girl, "'and yet I can think of nothing else than the absent members of our party.' "'Let us hope for the best,' replied Tennington. "'You yourself have set us each a splendid example of bravery, "'for in a way your loss has been the greatest.' "'Yes,' she replied. "'I could have loved Jane Porter no more had she been my own sister.' Tennington did not show the surprise he felt. That was not at all what he meant. He had been much with this fair daughter of Maryland since the wreck of the Lady Alice, and it had recently come to him that he had grown much more fond of her than would prove good for the peace of his mind, for he recalled almost constantly now the confidence which Monsieur Thoran had imparted to him that he and Miss Strong were engaged. He wondered if, after all, Thoran had been quite accurate in his statement. He had never seen the slightest indication on the girl's part of more than ordinary friendship. "'And then in Monsieur Thorin's loss, if they are lost, "'you would suffer a severe bereavement,' he ventured. "'She looked up at him quickly. "'Monsieur Thorin had become a very dear friend,' she said. "'I liked him very much, though I have known him but a short time.' "'Then you are not engaged to marry him?' he blurted out. "'Heavens, no!' she cried. "'I didn't care for him at all in that way.' "'There was something that Lord Tennington wanted to say to Hazel Strong.' He wanted very badly to say it, and to say it at once, but somehow the word stuck in his throat. He started lamely a couple of times, cleared his throat, became red in the face, and finally ended by remarking that he hoped the cabins would be finished before the rainy season commenced. But though he did not know it, he had conveyed to the girl the very message he intended, and it left her happy, happier than she had ever been in all of her life. Just then further conversation was interrupted by the sight of a strange and terrible-looking figure which emerged from the jungle just south of the camp. Tennington and the girl saw it at the same time. The Englishman reached for his revolver, but when the half-naked, bearded creature called his name aloud and came running toward them, he dropped his hand and advanced to meet it. None would have recognized in the filthy, emaciated creature, covered by a single garment of small skins, the immaculate Monsieur Thoran the party had last seen upon the deck of the Lady Alice. Before the other members of the little community were apprised of his presence, Tennington and Miss Strong questioned him regarding the other occupants of the missing boat. "'They are all dead,' replied Thoran. "'The three sailors died before we made land. Miss Porter was carried off into the jungle by some wild animal while I was lying delirious with fever. Clayton died of the same fever, but a few days since. And to think that all this time we have been separated by but a few miles. Scarcely a day's march. It is terrible.' How long Jane Porter lay in the darkness of the vault beneath the temple in the ancient city of Opar, she did not know. For a time she was delirious with fever, but after this passed she commenced slowly to regain her strength. Every day the woman who brought her food beckoned to her to arise, but for many days the girl could only shake her head to indicate that she was too weak. But eventually she was able to gain her feet, and then to stagger a few steps by supporting herself with one hand upon the wall. Her captors now watched her with increasing interest. The day was approaching, and the victim was gaining in strength. Presently the day came, and a young woman whom Jane Porter had not seen before came with several others to her dungeon. Here some sort of ceremony was performed. That it was of a religious nature the girl was sure, and so she took new heart, and rejoiced that she had fallen among people upon whom the refining and softening influences of religion evidently had fallen. They would treat her humanely. Of that she was now quite sure. And so when they led her from the dungeon, 
through long, dark corridors, and up a flight of concrete steps to a brilliant courtyard, she went willingly, even gladly. For was she not among the servants of God? It might be, of course, that their interpretation of the Supreme Being differed from her own, but that they owned a God was sufficient evidence to her that they were kind and good. But when she saw a stone altar in the center of the courtyard, and dark brown stains upon it and the nearby concrete of the floor, she began to wonder and to doubt. And as they stooped and bound her ankles, and secured her wrists behind her, her doubts were turned to fear. A moment later, as she was lifted and placed supine across the altar's top, hope left her entirely, and she trembled in an agony of fright. During the grotesque dance with the votaries which followed, she lay frozen in horror, nor did she require the sight of the thin blade in the hands of the high priestess, as it rose slowly above her to enlighten her further as to her doom. As the hand began its descent, Jane Porter closed her eyes and sent up a silent prayer to the maker she was soon to face. Then she succumbed to the strain upon her tired nerves and fainted. Day and night Tarzan of the Apes raced through the primeval forest toward the ruined city in which he was positive the woman he loved lay either a prisoner or dead. In a day and a night he covered the same distance that the fifty frightful men had taken the better part of a week to traverse, for Tarzan of the Apes traveled along the middle terrace high above the tangled obstacles that impede progress upon the ground. The story the young bull ape had told made it clear to him that the girl captive had been Jane Porter, for there was not another small white she in all the jungle. The bulls he had recognized from the ape's crude description as the grotesque parodies upon humanity who inhabit the ruins of Opar. And the girl's fate he could picture as plainly as though he were an eyewitness to it. When they would lay her across that trim altar he could not guess, but that her dear, frail body would eventually find its way there, he was confident. But finally, after what seemed long ages to the impatient ape-man, he topped to the barrier cliffs that hemmed the desolate valley, and below him lay the grim and awful ruins of the now hideous city of Opar. At a rapid trot he started across the dry and dusty, boulder-strewn ground toward the goal of his desires. Would he be in time to rescue? He hoped against hope. At least he could be revenged. And in his wrath it seemed to him that he was equal to the task of wiping out the entire population of that terrible city. It was nearly noon when he reached the great boulder at the top of which terminated the secret passage to the pits beneath the city. Like a cat, he scaled the precipitous sides of the frowning granite Kopje. A moment later, he was running through the darkness of the long, straight tunnel that led to the treasure vault. Through this he passed, then on and on until at last he came to the well-like shaft upon the opposite side of which lay the dungeon with the false wall. As he paused a moment upon the brink of the well, a faint sound came to him through the opening above. His quick ears caught and translated it. It was the dance of death that preceded a sacrifice, and the sing-song ritual of the high priestess. He could even recognize the woman's voice. Could it be that the ceremony marked the very thing he had so hastened to prevent? A wave of horror swept over him. Was he, after all, to be just a moment too late? Like a frightened deer, he leaped across the narrow chasm to the continuation of the passage beyond. At the false wall he tore like one possessed to demolish the barrier that confronted him. With giant muscles he forced the opening, thrusting his head and shoulders through the first small hole he made, and carrying the balance of the wall with him to clatter resoundingly upon the cement floor of the dungeon. With a single leap he cleared the length of the chamber and threw himself against the ancient door. But here he stopped. The mighty bars upon the other side were proof even against such muscles as his. It needed but a moment's effort to convince him of the futility of endeavoring to force that impregnable barrier. 
There was but one other way, and that led back through the long tunnels to the boulder a mile beyond the city's walls, and then back across the open as he had come to the city first with his waziri. He realized that to retrace his steps and enter the city from above ground would mean that he would be too late to save the girl, if it were indeed she who lay upon the sacrificial altar above him. But there seemed no other way, and so he turned and ran swiftly back into the passageway beyond the broken wall. At the well he heard again the monotonous voice of the high priestess, and, as he glanced aloft, the opening, twenty feet above, seemed so near that he was tempted to leap forward in a mad endeavor to reach the inner courtyard that lay so near. If he could get but one end of his grass rope caught upon some projection at the top of that tantalizing aperture. In the instant's pause and thought, an idea occurred to him. He would attempt it. Turning back to the tumbled wall, he seized one of the large flat slabs that had composed it. Hastily making one end of his rope fast to the piece of granite, he returned to the shaft and, calling the balance of the rope on the floor beside him, the ape-man took the heavy slab in both hands and, swinging it several times to get the distance and the direction fixed, he let the weight fly up at a slight angle, so that, instead of falling straight back into the shaft again, it grazed the far edge, tumbling over into the court beyond. Tarzan dragged for a moment upon the slack end of the rope until he felt that the stone was lodged with fair security at the shaft's top. Then he swung out over the black depths beneath. The moment his full weight came upon the rope he felt it slip from above. He waited there in awful suspense as it dropped in little jerks, inch by inch. The stone was being dragged up the outside of the masonry surrounding the top of the shaft. Would it catch at the very edge? Or would his weight drag it over to fall upon him as he hurtled into the unknown depths below? Join us next week Sunday night for the final two chapters of The Return of Tarzan. If you enjoy our story at 1001 Stories for the Road and you're an Apple listener, please do stop and send us a review. We would appreciate that very much. Meanwhile, we'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.